Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome back to this week's episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. Our TIPQC team had a very busy summer full of learning sessions, developing educational videos, and one of our most favorite improvement opportunities so far. This past June, we hosted a hands-on simulation training. We met for this training in Nashville with 141 nurses, providers, emergency departments, nurse educators, clinical managers, transport coordinators, and hospital educators. 49 hospitals in all participated in this maternal and infant simulation training. Our focus was on hypertension and hemorrhage simulation trainings to support standardization of hospital protocols and education surrounding two of the leading causes of severe maternal morbidity. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Kimberly Scheimer, who led our trainees through the importance of simulation debriefing. She and Dr. Scott Guthrie, the TIPQC Infant Medical Director, sit down to discuss methods and tools to improve care through simulations. I will warn you, this conversation was so rich, we have broken this episode into parts one and two, so make sure to check back next week for the second half of this conversation. And now, part one of Simulation Debriefing. Welcome, Dr. Scheimer. I am so excited that you're one of our guests today. Thank you, Dr. Guthrie. It's a pleasure to be here. I just want to thank you for this opportunity to be able to talk more about simulation and debriefing. Let me introduce our audience to you. I have known you for nearly 20 years now, so they need to find out how awesome you are as well. And over the past 20 years, you have not been able to get rid of me either. So that's a funny (laughs) story, how we keep reconnecting. Uh, So Dr. Scheimer trained at me at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. We were fellows a long time ago together. She stayed around at Vanderbilt for several years after that, helped set up one of the outreach education programs with Vanderbilt, where she moved on to Indiana, where she worked in the Indiana University School of Medicine at one of the affiliate neonatal intensive care units uh, there where we reconnected when I was helping out. And since then, she has moved on to the University of Louisville, where she has been very active in setting up neonatal simulation in Paducah, Kentucky, where she's currently based and throughout the Western Kentucky area. We got you involved because you're an expert in this and you got to help us out with the PC simulation training that we did out in Nashville. And our hospitals in Tennessee have been super excited about this. They have been using their simulation equipment already, trying to get their programs going. And we thought it would be wonderful if they could hear from you and you could share some of your expertise and knowledge that you have acquired over the years. Before we get started with the real questions, one of the things I always like to do with my guests is just ask them a nice, easy question to get them started and just pick your brain a little bit. And this has to do with a billboard. If you could have one giant billboard somewhere and have a message on it for people to read, 
as they're starting their day driving into work or as they're finishing up the day at the end of work, what would your message be to the community? That's a great question. I think what I would have on that billboard is something I learned from Dr. Calhoun, who does a lot of simulation and involved in a lot of simulation at University of Louisville. And he said something to me that I just found fantastic. He said, what we do here will change what happens in the real world next. Do that and we succeed in real life. And I think that's a marvelous encapsulation of what simulation is about in the fact that I don't care what happens to the mannequin. I don't care what happens in simulation. I just want that we walk out of this with something new that we've learned and that's going to change what happens in real life. And then that's a success for the next patient. I like that. That's awesome. Hey, so tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you got involved into this before we move on to some of our more detailed questions. Yeah, so I'm a neonatologist here at Baptist Health Paducah, and I've been involved in simulation for a few years. I really got interested in simulation while I was at Deaconess Women's Hospital in Indiana with Indiana University School of Medicine and had the opportunity to work there with Dr. Bobby Byrne to help set up a simulation program in that hospital. I really liked the idea that we could take this out to those hospitals in Southern Indiana and Southern Illinois, go there hands-on and help them refine their skill set because they just don't see these high acuity, low frequency events very often. And so this gave them a chance to practice, gave us a chance to teach them some fine points and tips. And it also helped us identify latent safety threats that were going on there. And so I really enjoyed that. And so now I've brought that here because I see such a value to that kind of a program for quality improvement and assurance and improving the system that you're in. Yeah, and that's where I really want to pick your brain because you are unique in that you have this experience in some of these rural, more underserved places. And that's what we are trying to focus on here in Tennessee with the TIPUC program. We're trying to get some of these, these smaller hospitals involved in simulation to improve their care. I know you have learned a whole lot over the past few years. Tell us if you could tell these hospitals a couple of things that they need to hear in order to get their programs up and going. What would you share with them about what they need to do that you've learned to do correctly? So I think that's a great question. And so I think one of the things that sometimes people think is that you need a really expensive high fidelity mannequin to start your simulation program. That's not necessarily the case. You can actually do a lot with a sim in from Lairdall, a simple lower fidelity mannequin where you can do a lot of things to it. So I think that's the first thing. The next thing is that learning to debrief is hard, but it's worth it in the end. It takes time to develop those skills. I play a violin in a string ensemble, and I think one of the most difficult things for me was I would learn the piece of music and I would have it down and I'd go to the string ensemble and I'd be playing with everybody else and I couldn't play it, couldn't even read the music. And they would just laugh at me. They were like, yeah, it's because you've got so many other inputs in the room from all the other people playing in the instruments, your brain can't adjust to it. And so when you're learning to debrief and basically they said, just give it time and your brain will adjust and you'll be able to take all of those things and you'll be able to handle all of them at once and then it'll start flowing for you. But just over learn your piece of music it before you start. And I think that applies really to when you're learning how to debrief in that you have so many inputs and so many things that you're trying to juggle and keep track of. Your time, who's a little bit insecure, who knows what, how do I remember all the mistakes? How do I come back and bring it all? There are all these little pieces that you're juggling. And so it's a difficult skill to learn, but if you keep at it, eventually you'll improve with that skill set and that it's worth it. The other thing is most nonprofit hospitals will have some kind of a foundation 
foundation where you can ask for money so that when the time is right and you're ready to step into a high fidelity mannequin, you'll be able to do that. And then the other thing is always keep a set of evaluations for every learner. So track all the learners, all the contact that you've had, have an evaluation from each one of those, as well as a list of the latent safety threats that you've identified from every simulation you've run. And what this does is it helps you when you go to administration or to the foundation, you're looking for money, you can clearly show, here's the value of this program. These are the differences that we've made throughout our time doing these simulations. Explain that latent safety threat to our audience real quick. That's a term we didn't use at our TPC training, and I want to make sure everybody knows what that means. Latent safety threats. What latent safety threats are is when you're in there running a simulation, what you're going to find are all the little kinks in the system, the little things that you don't realize, like, oh, gee, we have two different size masks, but they're actually the same size, even though they're labeled different sizes. And so you can't find one that actually works for the baby because there's no difference in those sizes. Or you go in and you identify something in the system or in the process, like, oh, we're doing delayed cord clamping. Great, everybody's doing delayed cord clamping, but NRP isn't getting initiated for the first minute of life. And so you can identify, oh, this could be a potential problem for us. Okay, how do we plan on handling that? How do we plan on changing what we're doing? So let's have the obstetrician start. Let's have the nurse at the bedside start that NRP will warm, dry, and stimulate, use mom's belly as a pseudo radiant warmer with some towels there, and start that warm, dry, stimulate suction if we need to while we're doing that delayed cord clamping so that you find these things that you might not think of when you're doing that. Super helpful. So speaking of these hospitals and some of the obstacles and problems that they may encounter as they're trying to get their programs up and going, what are some of the biggest obstacles you've seen in the past that people may encounter that they need to be aware of? So I think one of the big obstacles is you need to have buy-in from administration as there's an expense related to a simulation program. And so the expense, it's not only for the learners who have to be compensated for their time attending a simulation, but also for the facilitator's time and for the mannequins and the equipment. So you need buy-in from administration and support from them. You also need to focus on the benefits that simulation provides and the resulting decrease in hospital expense related to simulation. So this is where those latent safety threats come in or that improvement in care for the patient because you're increasing safety for the patients and you're having an improvement in your skills and your teamwork. And so that's really benefiting the hospital and decreasing their liability. And then because you're doing simulation, it gives you that finger on the pulse of the frontline worker and getting feedback from them to improve the system. Because often the CEO, the guy at the top, isn't going to know what do we need to be doing frontlines that actually is going to improve our care. But it'll be the frontline workers who will come up with really cool things or ask really great questions that lead to improvements in the system. And so simulation is a great way to get that information out of them. And the last thing is, is just developing the skills to debrief effectively. Learning to debrief is very hard and it takes time and effort. And when you're in a small hospital, there only may be one or two of you. If there's two of you, that works better because you can work with each other and practice on each other and help each other refine your skills. If you don't, try to find somebody who can help you in that process. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I like that you said, hey, we need to get the administration engaged because that's one of the things that PPC is trying to do as we go visit some of these hospitals and continue to help them as they get their programs up and going. 
we're trying to make visits to the C-suite as well to engage the administrators. When these emergency situations arise in these smaller hospitals, and you've already used this term, the high acuity, low occurrence event, halo events, for those of us that are in the know, so when these halo events occur in these smaller rural hospitals, how do you see simulation improving their care? I think this is a great place for simulation to improve care. And just as you said, Scott, these are very low frequency, high acuity things that happen. And simulation becomes very valuable because people don't do it very often. If you're in a hospital where you're only doing 400 deliveries a year, your preterm rate's 10%, but you actually don't see a extreme premature baby, but maybe once a year. You might have a little over three premature babies a month, but they're going to be your late preterm babies, not your tiny ones. Or an abruption or a depressed infant is actually a very rare occurrence at these hospitals. So it doesn't happen very often. And if you're the staff, how often will you actually see that kind of a patient. If it happens once a year, twice a year, but you're not on, you may actually go several years before you see something that acute. So this gives you a chance to get your hands back on it, get your skills on it, dust off those skills and remember, okay, how do we want to do this as a team? How do we want to approach an abruption so that you become a well-greased machine. You know, if you have your child and it's on that bed and you've had an abruption, do you want a team that's running like the Daytona 500 where they're just changing things out real quick? Or do you want somebody who, oh yeah, we, we wanted to do this, didn't we? And so that the difference is that child, it may take 15 minutes to get a bolus of fluid versus two and a half, three and a half minutes. If you've got a well-greased machine and everybody knows, hey, you're the nurse, you're going to set up the umbilical venous line ahead of time before the doctor gets here. So when the doctor walks in the room, all they have to do is throw it in. That's a big time saver. Love it. The other benefits for a tiny hospital are that when they're faced with this thing so rarely, they're going to have a lot of nerves in the middle of running that code. If you're running simulations, then they learn their job so well that they're not going to have those nerves in the acute process. It's just their job. They're going to do it. And also, as you're running those simulations, it really enables them to understand that 99.9% .9 of babies will respond to positive pressure ventilation. And so how important it is for them to understand how to problem solve with Mr. Sopa and ensure that they're giving adequate ventilation and that they can avoid having to do chest compressions in, except for one out of a thousand babies. And so I think that's really huge key for them in those environments. So what do you think the leaders, because we brought in leaders from these hospitals to come in and learn this information, what do they need to do to continue to encourage their team to participate in this, to build these team skills and the ability to work together? What advice would you give to them? So I think administration can help by making it mandatory that their staff attend so many simulations a year. And I think that number can adjust at times depending upon the needs of their staff and the training needs of their staff. So is it twice a year or is it quarterly or is it once a year? And so that can adjust depending on the skill that you're trying to develop. But again, administration choosing to make that mandatory for the staff so that they have to attend can really help out. And then keep open the lines of communication with your stakeholders. You'll have key stakeholders and they're the ones who are going to support your program, but you want to make sure that you keep them informed so that they know how much time is this taking. Let them know the evaluation results so they can see the benefits. Let them know what those latent safety threats were identified and how you fix them or are planning to fix them. 
and they can help you make sure that you're staying fiscally responsible within their entire system. It really helps to keep them in the know because then gossip doesn't get to them and undermine your program or threaten your program. I think another thing is making sure that you have a physician advocate. This can help you because they can help expand your medical knowledge. They can help you identify key learning points, the whys behind what we're doing, and they can also problem solve for latent safety threats that are found. And then don't grow too fast. Make sure that you've got a sustainable program. Sometimes the popularity grows very fast and the demand grows and you want to make sure you be realistic about what your facilitators can actually do and don't burn them out. So let me uh, go into some more specifics on the simulation training, Kim, and some advice from you there. And then I want to move into the debriefing because that's where I know your real passion is. So I'm going to pick your brain significantly on debriefing here in just a second. But one of the things that in your video at the simulation training that we did, you mentioned something called the funnel introduction to simulation. And I love that. I had never heard that before. And I thought that was awesome. And I want to make sure our audience understands exactly what that funnel introduction is. Can you explain that a little bit in more detail and how we can use that? Yeah, it was just kind of something I came up with it because it comes from English when I took English 101 in college and you had to do your funnel introduction when you start with the big concept and move to the smaller and the fine point in your first well, paragraph. That's why I've never heard of it before because you came up with it. Yes. So explain <laughs> this to everybody. I love this. So it's that same concept, but you start in the beginning with the things that are the biggest worries and fears, so to speak. So first you introduce yourself so they know who you are and you know who they are. What's their name? What do they do? Where do they work? And that just breaks the ice. And then you want to move into providing the vision. Like, why are we doing this now? Because that's going to be on their mind. Why are we doing this now? Why? We've never done simulation before. Why are we moving towards this? Did I do something wrong? So provide them with that vision so you can really link their heart into it and get buy-in from them that they're going to want to improve their skills. This is tip QC and we're moving forward with this simulation in the hopes of decreasing infant and maternal morbidity and mortality throughout the whole state of Tennessee. And so that's where this is coming from. And so now you've dealt with that why now question. Now you're moving into, well, I don't want any else to know about it. So talk about maintaining that confidentiality. What happens in simulation stays in simulation, just like Las Vegas. And that if they hear somebody talking about it, because nobody should be gossiping about what happens in simulation. Nothing matters about what's in simulation. If you hear somebody talking about it, then they are to let you know or let somebody else know. So that can be dealt with because it's not acceptable for anybody to be gossiping about what goes on in simulation. So we maintain that confidentially and that expectation is set. And then now that they're not worried about, oh, somebody's going to talk about me behind my back or they're not out to get us. This isn't some new thing that the organization is doing to weed out weak members. Now you can help them focus on how do we treat this as a real situation? How do we get the most bang for our buck? How do we get the most out of this learning opportunity? And so then you want to, again, ask them to suspend disbelief. We can't make an exactly realistic scenario, but suspend disbelief. Tell them how to make it a real situation. Suspend the disbelief. You really want to immerse yourself into this practice and do everything that you would do as if this was 
was a real baby you were taking care of and a real patient. And that will really help you get the most out of this process. And then you don't want any surprises for them. So giving them a time frame of how long should the simulation take? It's going to be an hour. We're going to orient for about five, 10 minutes. Then we're going to go two to three minutes the simulation. Then we're going to talk about it for five to 10, then do two to three minutes and rerun the simulation from the beginning. Then we're going to talk about it again for five to 10 minutes. Then we're going to go back, rerun it again for two to three minutes from the beginning, and then do a final discussion about it. And then they know what to expect and they don't get surprised Love it. when you ask them to run it again. And then when the mannequin, they're going to have to orient to the mannequin. And so you just need to tell them what your mannequin can do, what it can't do, what kind of vital signs can you expect, what kind of things can you hear from the mannequin, and where are they going to get the vital signs they can't get from the mannequin? Is that something that you're going to tap out for them? Will you tell them if they're retractions if they ask? And then the next is tell them how the confederate works. This is the person who's helping you in the room. Maybe they're pretending to be the OB delivering the baby. So let them know who they are and what information they can get from them. And then you're going to finally give them the scenario. Love it. So let's talk about the scenario and the realism that we want to try to put in these simulations the best we can. Can you give us some advice on where we might want to do these? Maybe some things we can do to make it seem more realistic to those that are participating in this. What are some tips and tricks you've learned over there? Yeah, so simulation will never be 100% realistic. And so just acknowledge that with your learners, that there will always be a lack of realism. And that's okay. We know that. And then we take that into account. And that's not a trick for us to try to trip them up. I think the place that simulation works best is the actual delivery room, using the the actual supplies you would use or the actual OR where the C-section occurs. Because now your learners are actually using the equipment they would normally use. And like for us, what we have is it's a basket of supplies. So we bring in our simulation basket of supplies. It's exactly the same. And so they can pull from those anytime they want, but we replicate that in the actual scenario location itself so that they'll have their hands on with that. And it's easier to find where your latent safety threats, which things don't work or or what you don't have in that environment and they'll learn better from it. That's great. And one of the things that we did, all the hospitals that came, we gave them a box of real supplies. We gave them a cookbook of how they can make various things like meconium and blood and gave them some chucks that had blood and meconium lookalikes on it to make it more realistic. So anything like that, I think is helpful to get your team involved. Any, yeah. Anything else along those lines you want to mention? Yeah, I love Crisco. Crisco is easy to put on the, the mannequin it resembles vernix. It replicates the slipperiness. You can even put a little drop of red food dye in it for abruption. I, I love Crisco. And then another thing you can do, like the skills days, those education days, you can make one of the stations be the mannequin so that they can see it, listen to it, become familiar with it and its capabilities outside of that actual simulation that you're running. And that's a nice way to warm them up to that process. That's great. Well, hey, let's talk about working with this diverse team because that's one of the things we want to try to master too. When we're doing these simulations, we want to try to get the physicians involved. We want to try to get the respiratory therapist involved. We want to get the nurses involved. Everybody has to function as the team. So give us some pointers about that. But also what I want you to do as you do this is also realize there may be one person that might not want to be engaged with this as much as they should. So how do we build this team and then at the same time, get everyone engaged, including that one person. And it sometimes can be physicians who don't want to play on this team to take the time out to do it. How, how do we do that effectively? I think that's a great question. I think that multidisciplinary team is actually the optimal way 
way to run a simulation because you'll be further replicating the real life scenario and what would really happen. And you can have the different members arrive at different times like they would in real life. So the physician, they've got to come from home, so they'll come a couple of minutes late. And so then you have them report that would be given so that you get to practice that communication and sort of fine tuning. This is what's going on with the baby. It allows when it's a multidisciplinary team, it really allows for teamwork that would actually occur. So this is where you're teaching the RNs to prep the needle decompression kit or the umbilical venous catheter. And so when they're prepping that ahead of time and know that's their job, they won't put them in, that's outside of their scope of practice, but they can certainly prep those things, put them all together. So when the MD or the NNP arrives, they're just already there and they can just use them. And that can help earn some buy-in from the physician or the nurse practitioner. You also want to have them talk about their needs and how to supply them more efficiently in order to provide care to the patient faster. So you would ask the physician, okay, you're faced with this situation, what would help you provide that care faster? And again, having that UVC assembled, having the cord already have the beta 9 with the umbilical tie on it. So all they have to do is cut the cord and feed the umbilical venous catheter in. So then they can see how that actually impacts their practice and how that benefits them and helps them deliver better care by having this team team work together in precisely the way that makes them the most efficient. And then you actually, you can work out the nerves in the simulation. When you're running a simulation and you're getting that teamwork put together, so the nerves are worked out in simulation, because why do we put ourselves through simulation, right? It's not a comfortable experience. Nobody wants to be under the microscope, which is what it feels like sometimes. But you put yourself in that situation so that you learn your job so well, you get your nerves out and your mistakes out on the mannequin. And then when you have have the patient, you don't have nerves anymore. You just know your job and you know it so well that you're just going to run it and do it. You asked an interesting question about how do you engage a resistant learner, somebody who doesn't want to be there. And I think your introduction is a good way to address a lot of the common things that people will have as hesitancies and fears about running simulation. I think for physicians, because they come in and they are, they can have a little bit more of those fears. I think one of the ways to do it is to, again, see what they would want out of it. The fact that you're working the scenario scenarios so that they're teaching their people exactly how to have everything ready so it's not 15 minutes before you get the bolus of fluid in, but two and a half, three minutes because the team works so well. Another approach is to make it fun. Fun relaxes people. It gets their attention. Look to add to them, but not embarrass them. And so this will draw them into the simulation and help them take the risk of immersing themselves for the sake of learning that will add to them and the care they provide babies in the future. Those who are resistant, honor their choice. It's okay. That's how they feel. Respect that. This is something entirely new for them. Use this information to help inform yourself of how you're doing as a facilitator. And then you want to focus on how you can provide an environment that will help them make a choice to participate and immerse themselves further into the simulation. Look to see how you can create a psychologically safe space for them. Is there a specific reason for the resistance? And can you speak to diffuse it or the confusion that's underlying it? Again, introduction is the key process in establishing that. And it addresses big ones because they'll have fears that the simulation will throw them off because it's not real life. So they'll not perform as they would in normal life or they're not pick up the apnea or the, the work of breathing issues because the mannequin isn't like real life. Or they're worried that leadership would hold it against them or 
or that there might be gossip, they'll be made fun of by staff or other facilitators, that their reputation will suffer and they'll be thought less of professionally and personally. Those are valid fears. And so you just acknowledge them and look for ways to, again, diffuse it. They also have fears that on a nursing level, maybe they don't actually know how to turn the radiant warmer on or how to actually work the equipment. So they actually don't know how to do it and they don't want people to find that out. And so they'll be resistant to that. You've mentioned the fears, this being underneath a microscope, the mistakes being made. When we see these things happen in this simulation event, what's the trainer supposed to do? How do we handle that situation? Yeah, so I think like one of the approaches I've used, it depends on your skill level. So you may have like, I want to get through one or two learning objectives. And so you stop the simulation there and then talk about it. But another way for a novice debriefer, you know, that can be a lot to hold in your head as far as which ones do you need to go back and hit on. And so sometimes what I've taught people to do is look for three mistakes. When you hit three mistakes, stop the simulation, even if you've accomplished where you wanted to accomplish or not, because it's easier for people to remember three mistakes and write them down on a piece of paper so you can go back and look at them. So stop that simulation, go over those three mistakes. You may have a simulation where you're expecting to go through an entire abruption sequence, or I'm going through chest compressions all the way down to epinephrine, but your learner group may be at a skill level where you have to stop. And the only thing you're actually going to get through is Mr. Sopo. You'll spend all that time, but that's all you'll actually get through because they don't know how to turn on the radiant warmer. They don't know how to set the pressures to 20 over five. They don't know how to give effective positive pressure ventilation. So don't try to get through the entire simulation in that scenario. Instead, spend the time because 99.9% of babies will successfully be resuscitated with positive pressure ventilation. So spend that time, walk them through, okay, here's how you turn on the radiant warmer. Here's how you get these things ready. This is how you pick the right mass size. This is how you give the Mr. Sopa. And they will be grateful that you took that time, but didn't do it in a judgmental way. Like here, yes, let's go over this and do this for them. Yeah. So maybe make sure our learners get that three times. You give your group three mistakes and then stop and teach and go back and start again. And it's okay if you don't get through the full scenario. If you're doing this regularly, every time your team gets together, they're going to get further and further along till you get the scenario completed. So everybody remember that three times. You're going to allow three mistakes, start over, restart. Anything else along that line, Kim? I think you've said it perfectly, Scott, because while we're doing rapid cycle deliberate practice, there's the micro cycles where you just keep stopping and keep going back and rewinding it. And when you're starting with a hospital, maybe the first couple of times you run the sim, it takes a couple of times before you've really got really good positive pressure ventilation and Mr. Sopa and people really have it. But that's a really big win in the real world for these babies. I think you said it perfectly. Yeah. Wow, we have covered a lot of great information on simulations and debriefing. I know you still have way more information to cover, but we are out of time for today's episode. I want to thank our audience for listening. I also invite everyone back for part two with Dr. Scheimer, where we continue diving deeper into simulation and debriefing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org 
that's T-I-P-Q-C dot org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.